0: And Father, we ask this morning that you would draw near to us in power. May your presence be known and felt in this auditorium as we worship you, as we continue to look to you, as we read your word and apply it to our lives. O oh Lord, I pray that this morning might be a time of great change and transformation in our own souls as we adopt your standards and not the world's. Cause us, Lord, to see the glory of Jesus Christ, the holiness of God, and the clear path ahead of us. Be blessed to be glorified in this service, we ask. In the wonderful name of Christ, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Lewis Carroll, and his imaginative farce, Alice in Wonderland, has Alice coming to a crossroads and not knowing which way to go. And it's at that point that the Cheshire cat appears. I'm not ashamed to tell you that guy's weird. And he freaks me out. Growing up as a little kid I I could remember seeing that crazy cat in my room and just going bonkers. But anyhow he appears with that smile and he says, where are you going? Alice says, I don't know. To which the cat replies, well, if you don't know where you're going, any road will do nicely. (laughs) If you don't know where you're going, any road will do. And I think that's a wonderful assessment, an accurate assessment of much of humanity, who does not have some kind of destination in mind. They don't know where they're going. There's not some overarching principle that helps them decide every question of life and to choose which road to take. They just choose on a whim. Spur the moment as to what feels best to them, as to what road seems to hold out for them, more joy and satisfaction and delight. That's how they choose which way to go. And I think the Apostle Paul, aware that this was innate in people, wrote the words that we find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 to give us direction with some overarching principle and destination of life. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And beginning with the very first verse, Paul says, finally, brothers, actually that's in the NIV, the new NIV translation takes that out. But I I like that, finally, brothers, because Paul's not even halfway done, or a little more than halfway done, and he starts his conclusion. Uh, All preachers can identify with that. Once you say finally, there's still a sermon left to be preached. But this finally is not so much I'm starting my last remarks, it's more of a transition statement. We've been talking more about autobiographical things up to this point, Paul says. I wrote this letter to you because I wanted to let you know I was concerned about you. You're young in the faith. They'd only been in Christ maybe four weeks. Well, at this time when Paul wrote the letter, maybe two months. And Paul's writing to young Christians and he was concerned that the pressures of, of persecution would cause them to fold. And so when he had fled the city because of persecution, he sent a team back there. And then Timothy came back to Paul when Paul was in Corinth the southern part of Greece and said, boy, they're doing well. You ought to see their faith. It's genuine faith. And their love is so energetic and their endurance is inspired by the second coming of Christ, by hope. They have faith, they have love, they have hope. They're a model church. Couldn't do any better than those guys are doing. And Paul was so thrilled. He was so pumped. So he writes the letter to say, I'm so glad to hear that you're doing so well. And he recalls his visit. The gospel they preached, chapter 1. The way they preached it, chapter 2. And chapter 3, his strong desire and his concern from them. But Timothy's report made his heart glad. And as Pastor Doug preached last week, he was concerned about their faith. You've got genuine faith. Now grow it more. Keep it growing. Now, finally... Let me go into the second half of the, of the letter. Paul says, now let's get to exhortation. I have a few instructions I want to give to you. Verse 1, finally, brothers, we instructed you how you need to live in order to please God. There it is. Live to please God. That's the overarching principle of Paul's life. Whether I live or die, I want to please him. I want to magnify him. Every decision I make, which will please God? What does God want me to do? Brothers, we instructed you when we were with you for that short time how you need to live in order to please God. And in fact, that's what you're doing. Paul says, now we ask you, that's polite, and we urge you, that's more of an apostolic command, We urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Paul's going to say the same thing in verse 10. You guys love one another. There's no reason for me to say anything but love more and more. And when he gets to chapter or 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 3, you guys have faith, increase it more and more. So now he says, You're living to please God. That is commendable. Don't stop there. Grow. (laughs) By the way, the word live is the Greek word for walk. It's a metaphor of life, isn't it? Don't live your life as the Gentiles live. Don't walk as the Gentiles walk. Walk by faith, not by sight, which means in all of the activities of your life, the way you think and what you do, the way you walk through life, Live your life to please God. That metaphor implies that life, the Christian life, is not static, but progressing. You need to grow. You need to ambulate through life. Don't just stay where you are. Oh, sometimes we stand firm in the Lord and we we hold a position and we don't let the enemy move us. But the main metaphor is progress, walk. You're going toward the destination. What's the destination? To please God. Live your life in such a way that God is well pleased. Do you have the smile of God upon you? Did you know that there are only two ways to live life? Live to please yourself, live to please God. That's it. Now, under the category of living to please yourself, uh, there are many subcategories. You might live to please others. But in essence, you're doing that just to please yourself. Or you live to please God. Living to please self is a life that is based on emotion, on feeling, on satisfying your own passions and pleasures. Living a life to please God is an objective life based on the authority of the Word of God. What does God say? What does He want me to do? So Paul says, I want you to increase more and more in this overarching perspective. These are the instructions we gave you, and these instructions come with the authority of Jesus Christ. So there's apostolic authority in verse one, and there's a Christological authority, the authority of Jesus Christ in verse two. This is the word of God. You know, Jesus lived his life to please the Father, John 8, verse 29, I do always those things that please him. That was the filter that he used to examine decisions and activities in life. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 9, whether we are at home in this body or absent, whether we die and go to heaven, no matter what it is, we live, we make it our goal to please God. If you're looking for a life verse, let me suggest 2 Corinthians 5, 9. We make it our aim to please God. He, he develops this further in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. We pray this in order that you might live a life worthy of the Lord and that you might please Him in every respect, in every way. And then he talks about what a life of pleasing God would look like. It would mean bearing fruit in every good work. It would mean growing in the knowledge of God. It would mean being strengthened according to his glorious might so that you endure and you're patient and you're patient and you're joyful and you're thankful. That's what it would be to live a life that pleases God, Paul says. Make that your goal. Don't be like a a boat without a rudder. Don't be like a car on a journey without a destination. Live your life and make every decision between now and the end under this great and glorious overarching principle, what pleases my Father? Now, chapter 4, Paul basically takes this idea and develops it in four different ways. First, in the first eight verses, he talks about how to live your life to please God with relationship to sex. In verse 9 and 10, he talks about how to live and please God in relationship to brotherly love. In verses 11 and 12, it's diligent work, how to please God with the way you work. And then finally, how to please God in dealing with the death of loved ones. So here is a, an important, overarching perspective for life with four important issues and areas of life. Sex, love, Work, death, and how do I need to address each one to please God? Well, we don't have time to go through all of them, so we'll simply look at the first category this morning and focus on sexual purity. Now, I find it interesting that the Apostle Paul brings this up in kind of his follow up course with new Christians. Well, it's because of the world they lived in, which, by the way, is much like the world we live in today. The ancient world in Greece and Rome is much like the 21st century in North America. And so Paul, concerned that they understand these issues, deals with them as young converts. Now could it be, and some people think in reading these verses, that the Thessalonians had a tendency to go into this direction of sexual immorality? They were called model Christians with a strong faith, I'm not so sure that you can establish that the tendency was for them to go in that direction, but I think you can establish the fact that the temptation they were facing was overwhelming in the city of Thessalonica and in the world of Greece and Rome. And so Paul says, let's deal with this important issue. Verse 3, it is God's will. Many times the Bible implies it, Many times, the Bible doesn't come out so clearly and state it, but here it is. This is God's will for you, your holiness, sanctification. The word sanctify means to be set apart. It involves a process, but it involves also some attainment, some growth. It's God's will for you to be holy. Holy to be set apart and different from the world and set apart unto God. And like Christ, God is holy. He is other than anything else in this world. And we are to be like him, sanctified. How do we become sanctified? The Bible says, sanctify them through the truth. Your word is truth. That's what Jesus said. So we need to be sanctified. This is God's will. Now, not all of sanctification deals with sex, but it's an important part of it. It's God's will for you to be sanctified. That is, you should abstain from sexual immorality. The New Living Translation says, God's will is for you to be holy, so stay away from all sexual sin. Verse 4, that each of you should learn how to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in the passionate lust like the heathen who don't know God, and that in this matter, referring to sexual immorality, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Let's read that verse together, verse 7. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. It's kind of hard to do when there are 100 different translations out there, but you get the point. God wants you to be holy. And while holiness is a broad category, one of the important areas is this idea of sexual purity. So, Paul then goes on to give us basically three principles for sexual purity. Let's look at these this morning. The first one is a personal principle, it's stated in verse 3 and 4, and it's this don't let your passions rule your life, don't be ruled by your passions. Verse 3, it's God's will for you to be holy. That is, you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn how to control himself, control your own body in a way that is holy, in a way that is honorable. The word for sexual immorality is a word you're very familiar with. It's the Greek word pornea. That word started out, porne, was the Greek word for harlot, a woman who used her body to gain an income. And then it was broadened to pornea, which means all kinds of sexual sin, anything that deviates from the clear commands of God. And so the Bible tells us that we are to avoid. By the way, that's That's almost too kind of a word. The original word means to break clean, to cut it off, decisive action, avoid all kinds of sexual sin. Now, this portion of Scripture doesn't go into detail as to what is approved and what isn't approved in this whole thing called sex. So what we have to do is do a study of the Scriptures, right? And just to give you a brief synopsis, nothing is wrong with sex. God created it. Now, it's difficult sometimes for us to talk about that in a mixed audience on a Sunday morning, but the truth is God created it, and it's beautiful, and there's nothing wrong with it in its proper place. But the world takes everything God creates and defiles it. The world takes everything God makes and abuses it. And that's what the world has done with sex. You need the whole analogia scriptura, the whole analogy of the Bible. You need the whole story of what the Word of God says concerning this thing called sex. God made it. He made man and woman and joined them together. They were together and they were not ashamed. God brought them together for procreation. God brought them together so that this union might be an enjoyable union, and he brought them together so that this union would prevent immorality. It's one man and one woman together for life. That's God's plan. Anything that deviates from that is sexual immorality. So if you just decide, I want to get a new wife, I need a... Newer model, the old one's kind of run down, and you changed wives like you change cars, that's sexual immorality. Or if we're involved in sex outside of marriage, taking the gift that God has given and using it in a place where it shouldn't be used, that's sexual immorality. Or if you have both in the Old Testament, as you have in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, men going after men and women going after women, God says that is deviant and sexual immorality. Avoid pornea in all its forms. And in verse 4, Paul says, get a grip. (laughs) Get a hold of your passions. Now, that's a new concept to some of you, that you should confine the God-given passions that you have. But it's biblical. Did you know God gave you a passion to eat? Nothing wrong with that passion to eat. It's a survival passion, by the way. But it has to be controlled. Some of you maybe didn't know that. There is a sin in the Bible called gluttony. We rarely talk about it because we really don't know where the line is between enjoying a good meal, overeating a little bit, which we all do, and being a glutton. Where's the line? I'm not sure. But we kind of casually get close to it, and we joke about it, but it's sin. Control your passion to eat. Control your passion to sleep. God gives His beloved sleep. Nothing wrong with sleep. Is it possible to sleep too much? Is there something called slothfulness and laziness and lack of industry? Absolutely. Where is the line? Well, if you sleep eight hours, that's biblical. If you sleep eight and a half, that's sin. I don't know. I don't know where the line is, but there's a line. And so we need to control our passion to be lazy and do nothing. Or some of us to work all of the time and boast about, oh, I'm just addicted to work, which is awful, also sinful because God gives his beloved rest. We're so imbalanced. Control your passions. By the way, the fruit of the Spirit, the last one mentioned of the nine, is self control. What does Peter say in 1 Peter chapter 1? Of all those seven things you need to add to your faith, self-control. You got to learn how to get a grip, is what Paul says in verse 4. Now this is debated sometimes as to whether this means control your own body, the Greek word is vessel, or as some translations have it, to acquire a wife and live with her in a way that is holy and honorable. In other words, avoid fornication by getting married. And that's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's good for a man to have a wife that they might avoid immorality. But I don't think that's his aim here. I think the emphasis seems to be on your body controlling your passions so that you live a life that is holy and a life that is honorable. Romans chapter 8, verse 8, those who are controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. There's the two lives right there, controlled by your own lusts or controlled by the word of God and the spirit of God. And so God's requirement, God's instruction to a new believer, Acts 15, Jerusalem Council, the whole idea is avoid immorality, and that's what Paul says here. This is the will of God. The second thing that Paul mentions by way of principle is verse 5. This is what we might call a general principle. Don't adopt the world's standards. He says, I want you to live your life controlling your body in a holy and honorable way, not in passionate lust like the heathen who don't know God. Understand that these people are ignorant of who God is. They're ignorant of God's ways. That ignorant may be simply they've not heard, or maybe the ignorance is because they're willfully ignorant, but they don't know God. After the first service, Gary Bullock came up and he gave me a quote from A.W. Tozer, which is a great quote. A.W. Tozer once said, I will not listen to the man who doesn't listen to God. In other words, why are we listening to people who don't know God, listening to people who say this is true and this isn't, this is right and this is wrong, or there are no wrongs? Why do we listen to those people when they don't know God? It's tragic. It's even worse when those who claim to know God begin to listen to those who don't and adopt their standards. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. And that's exactly what our society is trying to do. They're trying to tell us what is right and what is wrong and the way to think. And if we deviate from their way of thinking, why, that's intolerable. Everything is tolerable except intolerance and biblical truth. Don't adopt the world's standards. Hugh Hefner once said, sex is biological, that's all it is. I didn't read it in his magazine. Someone told me that's what he said. But that's the attitude of the world. It's merely biological. There's nothing more to it than that. But God says, no, it's, it's spiritual. He said when you join together with someone physically, you're joining the essence of who you are. It's not just a biological act. It's emotional and psychological and the proof is when you try to break that apart all the problems that exist Christians should refuse to adopt the standards of the world remember Paul had a companion named Demas remember that guy does that ring a bell and Demas was right with Paul in establishing the early church he he worked with Timothy and Silas Probably a church planner, maybe preached the word of God, did counseling and follow up. Demas was a good guy. Paul says so in his letters. He's one of us. But in Paul's very last letter, he said, Demas has forsaken me. Remember why? Having loved this present world. And where did he go? He fled to Thessalonica. The reason why Demas went to Thessalonica is because, hey, that's like going to Las Vegas. Every passion can be fulfilled. No sin is looked upon in in any negative way. No one will condemn you. And Thessalonica probably was just like Las Vegas. If you take a tour of the museums in Greece and Rome, that have the ancient artifacts, you will be embarrassed sometimes because they have life-like statues of people of uh, in various sexual positions and activities, and and the nudity in the statues. And it's a great work of art. I'm not saying that the artists weren't skilled, but. You'll be a little embarrassed. And one guy said, oh, you Westerners, we have have too many prohibitions, and, and it kind of embarrasses us to walk through. But in that day, there was no embarrassment with sex. And I said, yeah, that's the way the world is even today. We adopt the world's standards. There should be some shame, but our world has forgotten how to blush. The concept that sex is confined just to marriage is a foreign concept in that day in Thessalonica. And could it be that some of those new Christians were being pulled by the tide of temptation to get involved in sexual sin? And Paul says, let me tell you, if you're going to live to please God, you've got to avoid and don't adopt the world's standards. They act that way because they don't know God. We act the way we do because we know God, and we're trying to please him. Demosthenes wrote of his society and Greece and culture a couple centuries before Christ came on the scene. He said, We keep mistresses for pleasure and concubines for our day-to-day physical bodily needs, but we have wives to produce legitimate children and serve as trustworthy guardians of our homes. And our world says, I see nothing wrong with that. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Stop thinking like the world thinks. Live to please God, adopt his will and his standards. The third principle, look at verse six. It's more relational. Don't take advantage of others. In this matter regarding sex, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The old translation has the idea of defrauding. To defraud is to take something from someone by fraud. You swindle them. You cross a boundary into the land of the forbidden. You disregard their rights and you take what they have so that you might enjoy it yourself. What people don't realize is that this thing called sex is more than just biological, and you rip from other people their purity, their heart, their spirit. You talk to a counselor, and they spend many hours trying to undo what has been done because of sexual sin. The predators who are only out to satisfy themselves Their only goal is, what can I get? How can I be satisfied? When the biblical principle, for those who know God, is I esteem others better than myself, and I don't want to do anything to someone else that would hurt them or defraud them, would destroy them or ruin them. That's a biblical principle. And so if I'm going to control myself, and if I'm going to adopt God's standards, not mine, And if I'm going to live to bless others and not to defraud others, then doing all of that, I will avoid sexual immorality and I will walk in the ways of God. God created sex and he has the authority to govern it, doesn't he? He has the authority to set down the the principles and the guidelines. Look at the last part of verse 6. The Lord will punish all men or punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and we already warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. That's verse 3. It's God's will for you to be holy. Verse 4, you need to live your life in a holy and honorable way. Verse 7, God has called you to be holy. You say, I don't like these rules. I don't like all this confinement. I thought when I became a Christian, I was free. I could do what I want to do. Well, you're free from the bondage of sin and the penalty of sin, but you're not free to do what you want to do. You're free to serve God. You're free to to live for God and please him. We've got so many Christians who say, I don't want any rules. I don't like these confining principles from the scripture. Well. Then verse 8 is for you. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction doesn't reject men, but God. The one who gave you the Holy Spirit. What kind of spirit is he? Holy. Paul used this argument in 1 Corinthians, writing just a little bit after these letters. He said, don't you know that your body is a vessel? in which God dwells, he called it a temple. Your body's the temple of God. Don't do something inconsistent with the one who lives in you, the Holy Spirit. Now, it's understandable that the pagans would establish principles and eliminate requirements for holy marriage. We understand that. But not you. You know God. Did you notice the Trinity here, God's will? On the authority of Christ, verse 2, and the indwelling Holy Spirit, verse 8? You know the holy God of heaven. Live like it. The way we make decisions tells us a lot about where we are going. Just like Alice at the crossroads. God has given to us his word and we need to obey it. It's his will. This is the word of God. This is the will of God. Someone who's involved in Eastern studies, working at the University of Chicago, made an interesting uh, observation. They had gathered together all of these fragments of cuneiform writings, the ancient writings from Assyria and Babylon and other places, and of all the fragments that they've gathered and discovered, 90 percent of them have to do with understanding the will and the minds of the gods, of black magic, of how to discern the future. 90% of those writings they've discovered. And they also discovered that one of the popular ways to understand the mind of God was to sacrifice an animal. They believed that the decision-making part of an animal or a man was not the head, but was the internal organs. And kind of our heart idea comes from that somewhat. And so they would sacrifice an animal. They would get the liver out, this is, this is true. And they would watch the liver move, kind of like reading tarot cards, and they would discern someone's future. It was based on the quiver of the liver. Now that sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Until you and I say, hey, why'd you make that decision? I just had a gut feeling. That's pretty dumb, isn't it? Well, at the moment, it seemed like the right thing to do. I have no arching, overarching principle of life. I just do what feels good. I do what I decide to do in the spur of the moment. I'm free-flowing, you know. God says, that's a horrible way to live. That's like the people who don't know God. You need to be different. You need to be holy. You need to follow my word. Suppose Jesus came to Lansing to tell us the mind and will of God. He was going to have a press conference at the Lansing uh, Civic Center or the, the Lansing Center, and everyone was invited, and the press corps comes in great numbers, and all the town is there, and it's being shown on cable. Jesus is going to tell us what God thinks, who God is. And finally the moment arrives and Jesus steps up to the podium and stands there for a moment and there's utter silence. What is he going to say? And Jesus lifts up a Bible and says, I've given you my word. (laughs) And sits down. Here it is. Those who love God should live a life to please God according to the will of God. And that means God's not called us to impurity, but to live a holy life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we understand from reading the scriptures that you are a holy God, that you cannot overlook sin. In you there is no darkness or wickedness. You've created us to have fellowship with you, but we fell into sin. And yet out of your love and mercy, you sent your Son to wash our sin away, to die on the cross and pay for the penalty of our sin. And now you call us to yourself. Come back to me. Repent of your sin. Believe in me. I will forgive all of your sin. And now I ask you to live a holy life. Lord, I pray that you will help us today to answer that question. Are we gonna live to please ourselves or live to please you? In Jesus' name, amen.